Hi, and welcome back to the Multifaceted Athlete with Coaching Lutz. I'm your host, Kelly Lutz. I am a USGA certified running and ultra running coach and certified strength and conditioning specialist. I am so excited to have you here today. We'll be talking all about running, aspects of running, strength training, and anything else that makes us humans who do sports. So let's dive right into this episode. I hope you love it. Hello, welcome back to another week of the Multifaceted Athlete. This week was such a good conversation. So I have another guest on and I'm guessing a lot of you may know her. I had the pleasure of talking to Megan Roach this week. I've looked up to her for so many years for her running and her coaching. I just love everything that she does and her and her husband, David, Swap Running, Swap Podcast, amazing coaches, just very positive, supportive, and I can tell you that Megan embodies that in everything she does. So this episode, we talked about so many things. Some of the things you can expect are embracing your inner ninja, data-free days, learning to run by feel, building your aerobic base alongside reinforcing speed, the importance of having a why, training for the long term, and dreaming big, and just so many other topics. I think you're going to love this episode it was such a fun conversation, and yeah, let's get right into it. I hope you love it. Let me know how you like it. Subscribe, rate, review the podcast if you're enjoying it so that I can continue having more fun guests on. And if you have anyone you want to hear from or if you are someone with a story or just want to chat on the podcast, send me an email, kelly at coachingclutch.com, and let's get you on here. I want to tell more stories from the community. So, Without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Megan Roach. Well, welcome back to another week of the Multifaceted Athlete. Today, I'm joined by another guest, and I'm really excited for this one. I've been following the couple. This is one half of the couple today. So today, I have Megan Roach on, and I've been following her and David for a long time. Some of you may know them as the authors from the happy runner or if you listen to the swap podcast or know their swap coaching and I'm really excited to talk to Megan today she is an amazing runner in her own right amazing coach working on a PhD in epidemiology probably so many more things I can say but Megan welcome to the show Thank you so much for having me on here. I'm pumped. We got to communicate over email um, and over several messages actually since 2020. We were just rehashing um, when we first met and when we first communicated over email. And so it's so great to put a face and a voice to the name and to the emails. And so I'm really excited for the work that you do and just honored to be on here. I'm pumped. Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation. And I actually didn't tell you, I I saw you and David at a race and was too scared to say hi last year. <laughs> oh my gosh, that makes, I, I'm like so sad about this. That being said, I have been like in that situation many a times for other people, but um, I wish you said hi, because I would have given you the biggest bear hug. So that would have been amazing. Yeah, it was the one up Bergen Peak in Evergreen. I think you were on the bike at that point. I'm pretty sure I ran past you as you were riding on your bike as David was running. 
that's an epic race. I actually, I biked like kind of to the base towards Mount Evans area and I got a little lost. So I missed David finished. So you probably <laughs> saw me like furiously trying to hammer back to get to see him in time, but, um, it's amazing. I feel like those local Colorado races, there's a certain like backyard sort of vibe to them where you finish and it's kind of like a barbecue, barbecue kind of event. And I got the vibes from that race and it was a special one for sure. Yeah, it seemed like a lot of fun. I was there just running for fun and I was like, oh, there's a race today. <laughs> but it was really cool to see all the runners, especially David out front. Yeah, he threw down in that race. Uh, it was, it's really cool. But Evergreen has a like a vibrantly growing trail community too, which is cool. I feel like the trails up there are amazing. So it's great to see the trail community really growing. Yeah, they have some of my favorite trails, like Elk Meadow and Three Sisters are two of my favorites, like all time favorites. Yeah. David was, David was saying, he was like, these are stealthy, hard trails. He's like, I looked at the course profile and I wasn't like that intimidated by the race. But then as soon as I got out on the trails, he's like, I realized that it was a totally different race experience than I had banked for on the, on the course profile. Yeah. Getting up Bergen, the meadow loop isn't bad, but then immediately going up Bergen peak, it's like, oh, this is a mile and a half of up. <laughs> Yeah. And I think it was one of those rare altitude days too, that was hot. So it was like high sun exposure. It was hot. Um, just one of those days in altitude that kind of plays a little bit like the heat at sea level, which is like hard to approximate. But, uh, so he was pretty fried after that race. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So let's talk a little bit about you since you're the one here. So first I have a question for you. I was reading your, like about you on, <laughs> on your swap um, website. And under your description, you said you like to help athletes learn to love the process of training, embrace their inner ninja and recover using a taco Tuesday approach. So what do you mean by embracing your inner ninja? I'm That's an amazing question. Also, I've done a lot of podcasts and a lot of interviews before, and no one has ever asked me that question before. So kudos yes. for doing the deep dive on research. Um, it's a totally unique question. I love it. Um, I think for, for me, I really like I've come into running, I came into running through track and field. Um, so I took, I played field hockey in college, took an extra year to run track. And I felt like for me, that process of track, and this is very much related to my own mindset was just a very like straightforward run in circles. There wasn't a lot of like creative movement in how I felt about training or how I felt about racing. And I really missed that. And so once I graduated college and got into trail racing, got into coaching, that was a big part of what I wanted to bring into running was the fact of like being out on a trail and, you know, being willing to throw in airplane arms or being willing to like jump up and woohoo over a rock and feeling strong and capable at the same time as doing that. And so I feel like I capture, it's kind of a inner ninja is like the best adjective or the best descriptor I could use to describe that combination of just like freedom out on the trails and yeah, sure. Running is work, but it's also a lot of play too. And so it kind of gets into why we call it our coaching, like platform, some work I'll play and just kind of the overall coaching philosophy that we have. I love that so much. I'm going to start using that now. <laughs> it does it's, it's, make sense. You're the first person to bring it up. So thanks for like looking extra deep at that level. But, um, it's been something that I think, you know, with athletes, it's just, it's so much easier to sustain the long grind of training when things are fun. And I think that the inner ninja gets at that. Yeah, it definitely, I really like your messaging around everything you do with the, some work all play, especially because 
I feel like people look at running and they're like, oh, that's so boring. That's so hard, especially once they get into training. It's like, no, it doesn't have to be that way. Like even road running, I know people like to shit on road running because it's not like trail running, but like both of them have their place and both can be really fun. You just gotta, you gotta make it that way for yourself. That's a great point. And it's actually why when I start with that story and talk about track, I don't think it was inherent to the track. Like I think even the track where you're objectively running in circles, you can also have the same approach in training. Like it can be fun. Also, you can steeplechase on the track. So that really changes things up too. But I think it's about, it's not so much about like the mechanics of it, but it's the mindset of it. Um, I think it's very possible to do that on the track. I know that I've gone on some, like what would seem to me is typically mundane road runs. And they've been like, whether it's like early AM and a city is like just waking up and I'm using that to explore on the road, there's been some like really, really magical moments out there. And I feel like that it's very possible to bring the inner ninja approach to the the track and to the roads, even though it might seem a little bit like less conventional compared to the trails. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like with track and road, if you're like primarily a road runner, I feel like you can throw in some track workouts to switch things up. Uh, I'm not so sure if you're a track runner. I'm not really super familiar with them, <laughs> to be honest, but I'm sure there's some way you can, I mean, go on trails, I guess, would be switching it up and making it more fun, just changing your environment, right? Yeah, you can actually do a lot of things as a, as a track runner and even as a road runner. Um, I have athletes do, one of my favorite workouts is diagonals. Um, so go to like a grass soccer field and run the diagonals at like a stride. Um, so I would say that's about like 75% effort and then jog the, um, the goal lines. And it's such a fun way to feel like an athlete. And to me, even though that's, I mean, you're essentially running in squares instead of circles. Um, once you approximate the soccer field or these interesting tangents, um, it, that to me feels like a playful ninja approach because it's, it's, you know, you're doing something different. You're mixing up the movement patterns and there's a sense of like play and athleticism involved in it too. Yeah. That really takes me back to, I play field hockey in high school. So that takes me back to some of our, yeah. Field our hockey player stuff. in the house. I love that. <laughs> field hockey has a special, very special place in my heart. So that's amazing. Oh, I, I love field hockey so much. I still, I bought a new stick like last year and I was like, I'm going to play field hockey. And I never did, but I have a brand new stick. So that's cool. <laughs> You should just, so I actually did the same thing. I was going through a running lull and I was just, I, it made me because I, I was struggling with running. I had this like autoimmune thing. I couldn't run. I bought a field hockey stick and was like, oh my gosh, I need to like revive feeling like an athlete again. And so I just play all around the house. Like I'll play in the kitchen. I'll play in the, our like living room. I'll play downstairs in our basement. And it's, it's been really fun. And I didn't even have a like proper field hockey ball. I was playing with a wiffle ball for a bit and <laughs> it was, it was great just to like just to mix it up. Yeah. Field hockey is so great. Um, how much of your like workouts you give your athletes, do you pull from what you did in field hockey? There's a decent component of it. So, um, that diagonal example is one, is one great one. I, we did that. I remember my high school field hockey preseason, and I always looked forward to that because my stick skills weren't great. Um, when I was like first starting out and I knew I could run, but I knew I was going to get owned on like the stick skills <laughs> component of it. So I really looked forward to the diagonals. Cause it was like when I could like try to prove my worth as a, as a young freshman. Um, so that workout comes from it. I also sometimes do give athletes like wind sprint workouts. Um, 
athletes that are kind of just feeling stale in training or athletes that have a similar like soccer or field hockey, lacrosse background, bath, basketball, and are used to, you know, jogging to the five jogging or, you know, running fast to the five jogging back, running fast to the 10 jogging back. And so there's different ways that I like to spice up workouts. And then even as a field hockey player, I actually did a lot of like two hundreds, um, on the track and that's, that can be a fun way to, to keep the speed rolling. Yeah, that's, that sounds like so much fun. And it's, I like that because it seems a little more different than your typical speed workouts that we always hear about. And I think that is changing. I feel like you and David talk a lot about some example workouts on your podcast and like, I'm always getting ideas from that and it's super cool to hear. So I guess let's dive into a little bit of science now. Mm -hmm. Love that. You are the scientist. (laughs) So can you talk a little bit about like easy running versus speed workouts and then what's happening physiologically and like why each are important and how they work into a training plan. That was a lot. So (laughs) we can, I, I love it. This is a great question. I actually really, I mean, I, as an athlete, I love training hard, but easy running is the foundation of every single training plan for athletes. And paradoxically is often the most neglected because I think there's a lot of athletes out there that just like to go out and run moderate to moderate hard all the time. And it's so important to build up that aerobic base. So the process of building up the aerobic base actually takes many years. And I think for athletes, that's exciting because that's why running can be this developmental process of growth over many years. Um, it would be too hard to go into all of the different systems in which that happens. Um, but essentially over those, that foundational period of years, as you're building that aerobic system, um, you know, you start recruiting more slow twitch muscle fibers and, um, you know, especially for athletes that have a background in, in sports where they're using more intermediate or fast twitch muscle fibers that can be really helpful. Um, the body becomes more efficient. Um, so angiogenesis happens, the formation of new, of new blood vessels to help support, um, delivering oxygen to muscles. Um, so all of those things happen and it's happening at the cellular level, at the muscular level, at the neuromuscular level, as athletes build, um, and support more easy running in their training. And it's neat to see what happens as you start doing that. But at the same time as an athlete builds easy running, it's also helpful too to make sure that you're reinforcing speed because otherwise, um, you know, that keeps the ceiling, uh, it essentially keeps raising the ceiling to support faster, the development of faster and faster, easy running at the same hurry or at the same effort. Yeah. And I remember, I think it's in the happy runner where you mentioned the metaphor of like thinking of like VO two max threshold and easy running as like being on a string. I love that. (laughs) It's actually funny because we were at the happy runner a while ago. So I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh my gosh, what (laughs) analogy do we use to that? A string sounds good. And I I suppose in our past lives, we wrote that. So let's go with that. I think that's perfect. Yeah. I think that's what it was. Um, but I loved it because it, it just makes so much sense to me because usually we think, or like you were saying, we run like moderately hard a lot and we don't focus more on like the top end speed, but we, in order to raise everything, you need to raise the top end speed. So it's, yeah. 
a perfect way of describing it. So I guess in practice, how that looks for an athlete is I, I would say, and it really depends. It's hard to give like exact percentages of like what percent of the reek should be easy running, but it's substantial. I, I would say anywhere from like 70 to 90% of a training week should be that foundation cap of easy running and easy can vary quite a bit. Um, athletes often like, oh my gosh, what is the exact heart rate that I'm supposed to run on easy days? Um, like, give me a prescription for easy days. And in reality, it's best to kind of gift yourself that range of stimuli. So to have, you know, to have your heart rate sometimes, you know, like peak up into zone three on a five zone model is okay on easy days. And then other days it's great to be, you know, really firmly in that zone one or in that zone two. Um, and so it's, it's also important that those easy days become a range of stimuli and not just like the same pace over and over again. And I, I think athletes like that too. It's, it's variable. It's fun. It's, it's mixing things up even within the same context of easy. Yeah. I think it takes a lot of pressure off too, because especially like we're in summer now it's hot it's harder. <laughs> Running feels harder. So like if you are trying to go by the certain pace, like you're, it's going to feel harder to go the same pace as in winter. Um, so I think that gives a lot of flexibility, like, oh, I can slow down a bit. And like, that's totally fine. A hundred percent. I actually like, I, I tell athletes, um, sometimes I even give this to them in their training log, like data-free Tuesday or data-free Thursday, where you go out and I, for example, actually, I gifted myself a freestyle shark watch, uh, for data-free days and it has no GPS metrics on it. It's just a cool looking surfing watch and it just gives me time. And I think sometimes it's really helpful to like lose that sense of, I have to run, you know, 7.30, 8.30, 9.30, 10.30 pace on easy days. And just to go out exactly as I said, to run by feel. And I find athletes really start to look forward to those data-free days. That sounds awesome. One of the things I've started doing is turning off the distance alert on my oh, watch. Great. That's amazing. Yeah. I started doing it on my trail runs. And I was like, this is so much better. And I haven't done it with road runs yet, but I'm going to, because I was like, I don't need to know when a mile has passed unless, I mean, even if I'm doing like mile repeats, that will be a workout programmed into my watch. I don't need to it's, know the mile markers. <laughs> I, I used to do, so I used to have this, I mean, I think I used to be like somewhat obsessed with data. Like I was analyzing every single data point in for me that thing of a watch telling me that like, I've hit this mile mark and here's my split would always lead to judgment. Mm -hmm. Um, it was like, my brain would go into all these different directions. Like, is this, is this too fast? Is this fast enough? Like, are you fit? What does this mean? And re in reality, it's just like one very, very small data point, but my brain couldn't help but going there. And it's much easier to have, you know, the full context of the workout after the fact and not have this like buzzing data points when you're like in the heat of the moment. Um, it's always for me harder. I'm always like more critical on myself in the heat of my, in the heat of the moment than I am post-workout. So it, mm -hmm. that was really helpful for me too. Yeah. And I feel like in the workout, it, if you look at the hard data like that, it can influence how you feel in the rest of the workout. Like you could be That's feeling stellar and then you see a certain number and you're like, oh, I'm actually not running as well as I thought. And then snowball. <laughs> 
It's, it's so true. Um, it's, I, I actually think the best design GPS watch is a GPS watch that would tell you that you're running. It would give you splits, but it would tell you you're running 15 seconds faster than you think, because I think it would, it would snowball you into that, like that forward momentum and the self-belief there's some interesting psychology studies, actually, um, Alex Hutchinson wrote, wrote about this in his book Endure, where, um, they're, you know, pacing on the track and their splits are different than what they're actually getting and how that influences the next splits from there just based off of the brain's perception of what those splits are. That's so cool. It's super cool. So, um, I feel like the, the mind body connection to me is, is fascinating, but it also has some scary amounts of powers as well when you truly break it down. (laughs) Yeah. So with data-free days, have you gotten pushback from athletes and how do you deal with that? If that comes up? I have a little bit. Um, I think athletes, athletes love data. Um, and Mm -hmm. I get it. Like data are sexy. It's, it's fun to have. And for, in some sense too, I, I get it because I feel like I have a Strava and I feel like Strava is almost like a daily journal in some sense. Like I look back on runs I was doing in the past and it cues me into like what I was doing that day or like, you know, just even mundane runs sometimes feel like a journal entry and that's a cool thing. But I think the more that we can mix it up, the better. And usually if athletes push back against that concept, I acknowledge the fact, yes, data are fun. Uh, journal entries on Strava are fun, but just trying it once. And usually once they try it, um, it's one of those things that one data-free run usually leads to more data-free runs. And I have like pretty strong confidence in that as a coach. Yeah. I feel like that's probably super helpful, especially like we were saying, just not getting caught up in all of the numbers that only tell a part of the story and can't account for anything subjective. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And even though it also too, like we don't always know those numbers are right. Um, GPS watches, like there's GPS, like sync zones where you might run so much faster because the GPS signal, or even in, I, I tell athletes who are racing like Chicago or New York marathon or Boston marathon, any of these big city marathons, like your GPS might not be accurate. It might be the GPS signal might be pinging off buildings and everyone else's GPS watches. So it's really helpful to get some practice actually and just running by feel. Yeah, that's a good point. I've had a lot of conversations where like the watch is not matching with the mile markers in a race, you know, and it's like, (laughs) it's kind of a frustrating experience, but at the same time, it's like, does it really matter if my watch is super accurate? And like, now I know, um, what the discrepancy is and what to expect if I am following my watch, but it is very interesting because athletes get very annoyed by it. I've had that happen and it's actually happened to me too. So I understand there's like, I think there's this like primal instinct in our brain when there is that disconnect between like, like what we expect and what's, or just even like the disconnect between the two timing sources, it's this like primal sense of frustration. So I totally get where that comes from, but I feel like it's almost like, priming the brain to prepare for the frustration and to be like, yes, this is frustrated. I'm annoyed, but I've been here before. And I also prepared for the fact that this might happen. So it's almost like you get like a little gold star for preparation when it does. Yeah. So speaking of data, what metrics do you think are some of the most important if you were to look at the data and not talking about like on a daily scale, like maybe more trend wise or bigger picture? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
we do a couple. So in, in swap, we have a few different like ways where we, and I hesitate to say like evaluate athletes, because I think whenever we give athletes workouts, it's, it is the mindset that this is a celebration and that this is a single data point and not one data point is more important than another data point. But I will say this an outstanding data point is, so I think, I think it's, you can actually draw a lot of conclusions from one single outstanding data point. I always tell athletes like that biggest, like baddest workout PR is who you are as an athlete. It's not the workouts where you struggle. And so I feel like it does help actually to have those workouts, but we give athletes. So I think pace is important, obviously. Um, and for athletes training for road marathons, we'll also, we'll often give like 10 K tempos. And those can be really good indicators of an athlete's fitness and even perhaps how to race the marathon in terms of, um, you know, we do some calculations based off of that to derive marathon effort, marathon pace, um, for trail runners, we do a lot of things like finding a 20 or 30 minute hill climb and repeating it and training again and again, um, and having that kind of serve as a benchmark, um, other things too. So we often look in pacing, you can look at someone's easy run pace and you can look at their, um, their stride pace. And it's interesting to see the offset sometimes between an athlete's ability to hit top end speed and their easy runs. Um, so there's all different ways. I think that we evaluate pace and it really depends on the athlete. Um, but then other important metrics to our heart rate, um, if it's a reliable source, not all heart rate, you know, wrist heart rate isn't always super reliable. Mm -hmm. Um, but heart rate on easy runs can be a helpful indicator of progression of fitness. So, um, there's a lot of like nuances and asterisks I could provide to that situation. <laughs> um, and then also great adjusted pace on Strava is mm -hmm. such a gift, um, for trail runners. Um, sometimes when you're running up a 10% grade and you're inevitably going to see times, um, at efforts that you're not going to see on the flat ground, the great adjusted pace becomes a fun way to get to, um, compare that to flatter ground efforts and just see where athletes are on the trails. Yeah. That feature is one of my favorite. It just, it makes me feel so much better about trail runs. <laughs> it really does. You're like, Oh, I was running. I, this was a 12 minute mile, but I was running a five minute gap, uh, great adjusted pace. So it's, it is always nice to have that. And there was actually the Mount marathon trail race this weekend, um, which is a 5k in Seward, Alaska. And my husband and I discovered that great adjusted pace can actually get faster on downhills that are above like 40%, which is, I, we didn't, I actually didn't realize that, that so most often when you're running downhill, um, it's going to like, so, you know, say you say you run a seven minute mile downhill, uh, it will equate to like a 10 minute grade adjusted pace. But if you run down grades that are steeper than 40% on Strava, it gives you bonus points. So like a seven minute mile may actually be a four minute grade adjusted pace, which is interesting. That sounds so steep. Yes. It's very steep. 40, 40% is like, is, is toying with gravity in a way that makes me uncomfortable as a trail runner. Yeah, that is a version of chaos that I would not be prepared for. Although I guess you would prepare for it. So yeah, <laughs> it's, I feel like it's, that is challenging mentally to prepare for. I feel like it's, it's, it's basically chaotic falling at that point, um, mm -hmm. at grades over 40%. And I think it takes a lot of skills that are different to just like what everyday runners even think about running. It, it takes like, you know, balance and proprioception and even learning how to fall correctly. So it's, it's kind of neat that trail running offers all these different skill sets. Yeah. And that's the one I listened to your podcast this morning on my speed workout. So <laughs> oh, thank you. That means a ton. I hope it was a good workout. I hope you have like good associations. It was, um, I mean, it's, 
it's funny because this is a tangent, but um, David was talking about how if we're like any Coloradan who complains about the heat in the summer, like East Coasters, just tell them to shut up. And I'm from Maryland, too. So I grew up in the humidity and training out there. But today it is humid in Colorado and hot. So it was brutal. It is so humid and hot in Colorado today. Actually, David had a workout and I was out walking and I was like, dude, this is going to be a tough one because heat and humidity and altitude all in one. It's like bringing the East coast, the beast coast into Colorado um, all in one. So uh, I am proud of you for prevailing through that. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I just kind of did it and it wasn't sunny. So that helped, but Yeah, I was laughing at that as I was doing my workout and complaining to myself about the heat, as you guys were talking about (laughs) how Colorado summers are not that bad, which I do agree with in general. Actually, it's funny because we recorded that podcast yesterday and I was out walking and I actually had that thought. I was like, we're (laughs) going to see some podcast listeners on on Strava be like, what were you guys saying? It can get very humid in Colorado and it can be not fun. Okay. So back to, I had another question about data. It kind of well, kind of about data. So the way that you coach, you guys like to use a Google sheet. Yes. Has that always been how it was? And I guess what led you to that decision? And why do you love that more than like using Final Search or Training Peaks or any of these? For anyone who's unaware, those are basically apps that you can connect to your watch or Strava. It pulls in your workouts for you. Um, And they usually have their own metrics you can look at, analyze but it puts more data in front of athletes, which I'll let you answer the question first before I yes, my yes. too. <laughs> there's definitely, there's pros and cons to both. Yeah. Um, we have for sure used the same Google spreadsheet for, I would say eight years of coaching now at this point. Um, and so the Google spreadsheet has prevailed the test of time um, and swap coaching. And it's been something that we actually really enjoy using. Um, and I think, you know, because we've used it for so long, I certainly hope that's the case. <laughs> I think for us, there's runners have this like tendency and this ability to judge so deeply and that's going, I think by nature of being runners, like that's probably going to happen and we can mitigate ways to prevent that. Like, you know, being an inner ninja or like channeling your inner ninja or like these different strategies. But I think when there's that like focus on the sharing of data that happens, um, like more readily in some of the easily available coaching platforms, which are great, by the way. I mean, we have, there's tons of like world-class coaches that use them. In fact, probably most of the world-class coaches use them. I think it puts this inherent pressure on each workout or on the metrics. And I would much, much rather know how an athlete feels and how their day is going. And like, how does this fit into the context of life and have that data as like a side side component of that, but not the, like, this is 95% of the visual representation between myself and an athlete or the visual communication between myself and an athlete. So in the Google spreadsheets, we encourage athletes to write about your your day, about life, about injuries, about anything going on. And then oftentimes athletes will put in a link to a Strava file or a Garmin connect. Um, And sometimes athletes, I have coached top level professional athletes who also don't even share that data. And we'll do some check-ins from time to time. So maybe they'll, you know, they'll, they'll run a 10 K tempo or they'll run a kind of like a more of a time trial approach on a local Hill, but I've coached professional athletes who have also not consistently shared their GPS data or their workout metrics with me. And that's been totally fine. I, I actually worked with Asher 
um, from a recommendation oh, she's from amazing. David. Yeah. Yes. Last year. Um, so I, I am well aware of the Google spreadsheet. And as an athlete, I loved it. I, it was so easy just to like mention things that didn't have to do with running, mm-hmm. but gave the bigger context, like you were saying, because running is such a small part of our day. And like, especially as a coach, when I don't know what's going on the other 23 hours, it's like, I can't do my job as well, you know, because I'm only seeing a portion of what is actually going on and what is affecting the running. Um, so I personally it's, love it. Yeah, that's so true. And I feel like it's a little bit easier to like write about, you know, breakups or relationships with food or like the menstrual cycle in something that doesn't feel like an app setting. So it creates for us like this much more like personal approach. And then, you know, we can go back and look at the the GPS data, but it doesn't become that like that primary focus. But we've also had athletes like run with the training log in different directions. So we have all different types of colors and people have different columns in their training log for like strength training, sleep, shoes, um, menstrual cycle. And so we also allow athletes to kind of customize it to what's best for their needs and what's the information that they want to see on a consistent daily basis. I've even had athletes track like some work goals in there. So like, you know, I want to show up at work and be X, Y, and Z, and then they track how it goes in their training log. So it really becomes like a training log plus in terms of like the communication style. And then we just rely on the simple metrics for, for uh, data tracking. That's awesome. And I feel like a lot of people do have Strava, like you were saying. So like, if you do need any kind of hard data, you can likely get it, but I think, I think the cool thing is what you were saying earlier is like, you don't need the hard data in order to coach someone well. No. Yeah. And it's, it's super cool. And I love when athletes and, you know, we will have data on them. So, you know, like maybe that's a three time a month sort of situation. Um, but I've had athletes who have this, like, you know, who know themselves well, and they have this visceral negative response to data and that's just not worth it at that point. Um, you know, it really for them might take away from the joy of what they do each day to feel like they're being tracked. And so that's like never the relationship I want to cultivate. And oftentimes those are like the healthiest coach athlete relationships. And we've had athletes win, you know, national championships off of that strategy, which is, is really, really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think this ties in, obviously it ties in well with your coaching philosophy of training for the long-term. Um, so I know one of the things you ask about when you're onboarding athletes is like, what are your goals for the next like five years? And that is such an interesting question to me because no one ever asked you about that in relation to your athletics. I feel like, so like I was emailing David last year about coaching and he asked me that. And I was like, I've never thought about that. Like, that's so cool. So can you talk a little bit more about why looking that long-term matters and how it plays into your coaching and your training? Yeah. I, yeah. So I think the question itself is helpful because like you said, athletes don't often get asked that question. It's like, you know, what's your, it's always like, what's your next race? What are you doing next? And I think the ability to think about things on a more like long-term three-year, five-year, four-year scale really encourages athletes to dream big, but then at the same time to also be patient in their daily actions. Um, I think so often runners are the type of personalities that we just want to do as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And 
often that doesn't fit into the five-year plan because it's like, you know, we could, we could peak, we could really go all in on training. We could take risks in training and perhaps hit the, uh, or really train specifically for a race, um, and really have that specific race focus over the next, you know, two, three months. But is that going to support the long-term process of building running economy of building that aerobic system of supporting like the full well-rounded athlete approach? And usually it doesn't. And so I think it's really helpful to have those conversations because it's that simultaneous combination of dreaming big and being patient. And if you can be patient and just consistently chip away and have trust and belief in the process, that's when athletes do amazing things. And I think the nice thing about the the way that we coach with the Google spreadsheets is it does establish that relationship so that we often will be there for athletes for three, five, you know, we've been with athletes now for up to eight years. And it's so cool to see they're like, I'm sure you see this as a coach too. It's like, you see their growth and development in life and in running. So it's like, you see their five-year life goals and their five-year running goals come together. And it's like, Honestly, it's one of the more, I mean, I've done work in a lot of different professions and it's like truly magical work because you get to be there for people in their high highs and their low lows. And it's rewarding to get to do that. Yeah. I, I love that approach. And it, it's so cool just to think far off, like, what do you want to do in five years? And especially having a coach like you or David that is supportive of those p- goals. Um, because it can be scary, you know, to think of really big things. You're like, I don't know if I could do this, but finding a coach that supports the long-term growth is really important and helpful in those areas. I love what you said about it being scary. I think that's often what we do see with athletes is that sometimes like when you care about something so deeply, it's scary to care because you're putting yourself out there. Like when you're saying, you know, we've had athletes that say, I want to win the Western States 100, or I want to be a national championship, or even athletes that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be these, like these deep mystifying things. It can be like, I want to run 50 K. I just want to cover the distance in five years. Mm -hmm. And you're truly putting yourself out there when you say that. And I think there's something awesome about doing that and owning the process of caring. Like this is important to me, this, this long-term goal is something that's valuable to me. And that's what we try to encourage in our athletes, because I know that, and I've been there before as an athlete myself, is that the process of truly caring can be scary, but that's where like the magic is made. Yeah. It's a fine balance. And I, I don't think, I don't know if this is a quote or if I just heard someone say it or multiple people say it, but I've heard people say like, if it's not scary, it's not worth doing. Um, and I like the spirit of that quote, not necessarily that like, if you're not scared, you shouldn't do something, but like big goals and things that really matter should scare you a little bit. Like, I like that idea. I I love that idea too. And I think that's where the combination of like the day-to-day when you break it down isn't actually super scary. So like, you know, to hit that five-year goal, it's about getting out the door each day and each day doesn't have to be this like magnificent workout. You just got to do it. And eventually you will build to that magnificent workout over time. And so I think it's about like, once you dream on that, we have athletes, you know, do the five-year plan, but then we have also athletes, like, what are your short-term goals? What do you want to do in the next few weeks? And I think having the two side by side is also helpful too, because it like, it, it breaks it down into something that is also less scary. It's just, you know, getting up and doing your thing each day and believing and trusting in the process. Yeah. And it gives you like more 
it, it reminds me of when you're talking about exercise snacks on, I think that was today's podcast, but it's oh like, my gosh, they're so on it. Yeah. Like goal snacks. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's such a good idea. Oh my gosh. I'm going to write that in the swap podcast <laughs> outline. That's going to be on the podcast next week. And like, and also giving a push for this podcast at the same time. That's brilliant. Yeah. I think so. The goal of exercise snacks is you can do like 20 second exercises. You can exercise for a minute, especially with strength training. This is valuable because oftentimes we see that athletes like to have these big, fancy 60 minute strength plans. Mm -hmm. And then when life gets busy, they inevitably fall by the wayside because it's really hard to carve out 60 minutes of a day in a busy lived life, but exercise snacks of, you know, get on, do, do push-ups on the floor for a minute. Those Mm -hmm. build up over time. And I think I love the idea of goal snacks. So we can have like some goal fruit snacks and yeah. <laughs> like today's, today's fruit snack is like getting out the door and going for an easy run. And it truly does add up over time. Yeah. I, that just came to me. So I'm really proud of that. <laughs> so proud of you. I'm, I don't let me actually, I, I will like immediately write it down after this because it's so good. Yeah. I, I think that's a really cool way to think of things. It's like smaller goals that add up to your big goal and they, they help you get along along daily and it helps you see like how you're progressing towards your bigger goal. Um, and I think it's helpful to see like, oh, I made these smaller goals and they're not pointing the way that my big goal is. So it can be like a good check-in. I also think it can really help craft your why, because I think sometimes the there's a, a difference between like what do you want to do internally for the bigger goal and maybe like the external pressure to do so. Mm-hmm. And I feel like those goal snacks, uh, the little, like the little snacks along the way where you, you, you have these smaller goals are a helpful check-in of like, are you enjoying this? Is this fun? And it's also totally okay too. We've had athletes in their intro email, give us these five-year goals that they all of a sudden decide in a year, like that's not the five-year goal I want. And I think it's okay to also like constantly reevaluate and change in the process of changing is a beautiful thing. Like quitting is quitting can actually be the most fundamental thing in someone's life. You don't have to like quit running altogether, but like, you know, you can, you know, change paths and change directions. And I think, um, the more that athletes get themselves the grace and ability to do that, the better. Yeah. I love what you just said. Cause I I've had conversations with athletes where, you know, they sign up for a race, they're training so hard for this race. And like one day they'll be like, do I even want to do this race? And then it's kind of a conflict. Like, am I doing this because I want to do it or because I posted on social media and everyone knows I'm training for this. So it's interesting. And I think it's good to encourage athletes and even outside of athletics, like take a pause and reflect on why you're doing something. And like, it's okay to change your mind. Like we're humans. That's such a beautiful statement. And it is true. Being human is changing. It's learning, growing, it's integrating all of that information and then making an informed decision to change your mind, which is such a powerful thing. But I actually, this reminds me, you know, COVID was a super challenging time and it still is a challenging time for a lot of people, you know, it's still a reality. Um, but I think during the pandemic, when there was like large scale race shutdowns, it was actually like forcing the entire running community to come to, uh, I mean, it was like forcing us to all 
think about our whys. We didn't have racing. Mm -hmm. And what I appreciate now about that period of time is that I think athletes really discovered like DIY adventure. So like going out and crafting your own 50 K route in the mountains or 12 mile route, or I've even had athletes do DIY 100 milers. Um, and it's super cool. I feel like to see this like spur of new creative adventures that came from that period of time where collectively as the community, we weren't racing. Yeah. It's such a special time. I don't know if special is the right word, but it's like, I feel like we fingers crossed won't see something like that again for hopefully a long time (laughs) where like the entire, there's no races for an entire year or maybe like some small ones. I know I think I did one in Vail that summer, but they had to change the course because we couldn't ride up the gondola. And it was this whole thing, you know, we had to wear masks at the star and be distanced. But yeah, collectively not having races, it was something that's such uh, like a rock in the running community was suddenly mm-hmm. gone. It's kind of, it's kind of like collectively, we all went through a large injury scare where (laughs) when you have an injury scare and you're like, you're starting to appreciate running for all these new different reasons. And I feel like it wasn't that way for everyone. Like, I think people had very complicated, frustrating situations during that time that made running more challenging. But I also think for a lot of runners that did kind of force that like injury realization of why, why do I do this? Like, why am I getting out the door each day? So, um, it's really interesting to think about that. And hopefully as a community, we don't go through that again, but I do think it was really instructive, um, for how we think about things. Yeah. And I feel like I've heard a lot of people say like they got into running during that time, which is really exciting because gyms were closed, you know, sports weren't going on. It was like, what can I do? I can't really go anywhere, but I can, I have shoes. I can walk out my front door. I can run around my neighborhood, which I think is really cool that we got more people into the community based on a bad situation. It's that's a great point. Actually, I noticed, and there's, there is research to support this, that trails became a lot more crowded, um, during the pandemic, um, people were really flocking to outdoor spaces as a way to like get outside and even like connect with others. And at first I remember being kind of like frustrated and territorial, but I'm like, this is my backyard trail. I've never <laughs> seen anyone out there. Like, why are all these people out there? And over time, I've really grown to appreciate that, that this is like, you know, people are getting to enjoy nature and trails and, you know, beautiful places. And that's an exciting thing. And perhaps their minds are being open to new experiences. And that's really neat. Yeah. I, I experienced the same frustration and I know here in Colorado, we had like, they would shut down the parking lots at a certain point when the trails got too full. So that was another (laughs) thing on top of being frustrated on all the people, but yeah, ultimately, I was like, I'm so glad I can still go on these trails and have access to them. And even if I'm sharing the space with a, more people than normally I would be, like, I'm still cherishing this time. That's a great point. Also, it's wild how far we come because I remember that period. Of, there was like a few, period of a few months where we weren't even sure. It's like, could you go out on trails? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, and you know, it was then, but it was. It kind of came, especially depending on where you lived. It came with this like sense of skepticism, and it is really neat how far we've come. So that's awesome. I know. I'm like getting flashbacks now talking about it. <laughs> I know, right? Like the like when you're out on a busy trail, and I remember there was one day where I forgot. I was like, you know, had a buff to pull up over my face, uh-huh. and. 
was like scrounging around for my car. I was like, what can I put over my face when I pass people? And the only thing I had was this like ridiculous looking sports bra. So I, I like hung it around my neck. And then whenever I passed people on trails, I would just like bring it up over my face. And it was a, it was actually a very funny uh, trail run and brought me a lot of joy just in like the ridiculous nature of, of it. And then also what we were experiencing collectively as a society, just recognizing that it was like challenging and filled with all kinds of weird curveballs. Yeah, that is a very good improvise on your part. Yeah, I was like, what? I was like, this chore run has to happen. What am I going to put over my face? <laughs> and it was like a red, it was like, I don't really own a lot of scandalous sports brawls, but it was like my more like on the spectrum of like sports brawls. It was a slightly more scandalous one. So <laughs> it was great. Um, speaking of sports bras, I just saw a study that came out. I think it was this week. I got it in my email this week about high support sports bras could lead to better running economy. Oh my gosh. That's interesting. uh, I'm coming away with all these podcasts. (laughs) This podcast is making me think about our own podcast. We do a sexy science thing on here and this is really cool. What was there? I'm like racking my brain right now to think (laughs) about like the scientific rationale behind it, which is a funny term to use racking. Um, Is it because I imagine just like preventing the, the, like the bounce or the movement? I think so. Um, I don't remember if they said, but I know they were measuring if I remember correctly, but they did only have one B cup and then the rest were up to double D. And I don't think they had too many women, but I'm guessing, I mean, like us A cups, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I know. I was like, I know I have, I talk very openly on our swap podcast. I have like the smallest boobs in the world. Granted, I'm pregnant. And so I'm like, yeah, starting to experience <laughs> the range of experiences of what happens to the body, which is very cool, but also simultaneously quite different. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. I'm super excited. I'm excited to dive into that research. So stay tuned. Yes. Yeah. I can email it to you. Perfect. Paper. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> um, okay. So speaking of studies, I love that you are very evidence-based and you do like go over studies and research all the time. Um, I'm curious how you balance like what studies find about whether it's like training theory, physiology, um, nutrition gear, whatever it is about with running and like personal anecdotes that you see, whether in yourself or athletes, like how do you remedy the two and just navigate that space? This is an incredible question. So I love, so in the field of epidemiology, we spend a lot of, we're kind of like the not really fun people in science because we like (laughs) spend a lot of time picking apart research studies and being like, how could they have done better? What could they have done wrong? Which isn't usually my personality. So it's kind of funny that I'm in epidemiology, but a lot of that is like evaluating rigorously the studies. And one big challenge in like exercise medicine and sports science research is that it's very hard to conduct a lot of these studies over the long term. So you have a study that's often like, I think the average, actually, it's, I don't know what the average length of the study is, but I would guess it's on the order of weeks and not months. Um, so it's really hard to do long-term interventions and I'm in research and, you know, doing a six month, a six month longitudinal study, which isn't even that long, that's six months that we're actually planning to do one coming up, but it gives me like stealthy amounts of anxiety because it's like, it's so long to track people. You have people drop out. Like there's all these different like variables and confounding variables, which interfere with the overall analysis. So 
it's, it's really hard in exercise physiology and sports science because we're limited by the studies, but there's also some amazing, there's amazing, amazing research. Mm -hmm. And so it's about doing the best that we can with those research studies and also looking for studies that integrate. There's a lot of studies actually now that integrate like so integrate those scientific method approaches with also like what are athletes doing in practice and there's different like um like scientific methods to do that and so it's really about kind of just finding a delicate balance between the two and neither one is perfect um you know anecdotes are always an end of one situation and with swap athletes we've hoped we've like hoped to gather a lot of anecdotes over time but that's still you know a limited scope of the population mm-hmm. and so it's a combination of relying on both yeah, I love that. Especially, I feel like in on social media, you see it so much nowadays. We're like, this study says this, and then it's like, not an ultimatum. That's not the word I'm looking for, but it's very like definitive. You know, it's like yes, this I was is thinking what of the word like to do. I was thinking of the word reductive. So it like oh, yeah. takes, yeah, it takes like it just boils it down into like the simplest common denominator, but it often overstates the findings and the process of doing that. And mm-hmm. as a researcher, I actually get severe anxiety whenever someone covers a research article because I'm like, are they going to overstate? And it's really hard. I mean, being in media, the media is not equipped to like fully interpret scientific studies. So it's hard, like they're doing the best they can, but it's hard to like fully grasp that. So it's a, it's about the balance of like diving into the weeds on research studies and also making sure that you, you keep the larger picture while understanding that the, the brilliance of coaching is that athletes are their own end of one equations. And so you have to be flexible with applying the science. And I think that flexibility and open-mindedness is so important as a coach is understand as much possible, as much science as humanly possible, like keep it in, like keep reading it, keep diving into it, but then have the flexibility in terms of how you apply it to athletes. Because I think the fully rigid approach just doesn't allow room for there to be outliers or room for there to be variances, even in how the study is conducted. Yeah. I, that's such a good point. I feel like I'm, I'm a newer coach. I've been coaching for like almost two years now. I guess that's maybe not newer, but you're you're not a rookie. Yeah. (laughs) You're definitely a veteran at that point. That's amazing. Yeah. But I feel like I'm still learning that myself. Cause like I, a lot of what I learned about running coaching came from like Jason Coop, um, and like his philosophy. And then obviously I've learned a lot from you and David and it's, it's interesting being like, a step back from everyone and like Sally McRae I learned a lot from her and just like comparing how the three of you view things I'm like so which way do I lean towards most not that you guys disagree on a lot of things but you know there are some things where it's like oh Coop thinks you should do this or like go about this way or and like you and David might think about it a different way and it's interesting being like oh okay so knowing what I know how would I apply this to athletes? It's so amazing. Yeah. And I feel like I love, I can already see like just how open-minded and flexible you are to like synthesizing the information. Like I feel like it's when we got into coaching, we wanted to read as many coaching books, like Jack Daniels, Steve Magnus, like these Mm -hmm. hallmark names in the fields and then integrate it like fully into what we were doing and the experiences that we were seeing. And I love, I feel like your open-mindedness is perfect for being a coach and perfect for like synthesizing that scientific information. But I do, I mean, I think sometimes coaches 
coaches that are very dogmatic on their own philosophy. I think sometimes that's a, that can be a, a point for athletes to consider is, is like, you know, is your coach open-minded and flexible? Because I think it's one of the most important parts of, of working with a coach and also like exploring your limits as an athlete. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's just so important finding a coach that like aligns with how you want to approach training. Um, I know we talked about this before we started recording, but like, I really wanted David to coach me at one point, but we differ on like, I really love strength training and I want to like increase some of my one rep maxes and stuff. And that doesn't quite align with your running coaching philosophy, which is totally fine and great. Um, but it kind of like showed me like, yeah, I should search more for a coach that is more in line with like that part of my training life. And I think that's an important um, message for athletes out there when they are looking for coaches, just because you look up to someone um, doesn't mean you're going to align and like, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, And there is a coach out there for you that will align with you. That's an incredible point. I almost feel like it's like a relationship because I mean, it's, it's truly like a coach athlete relationship, but I feel like the best relationship dating advice I ever like received when I was young was just to be fully yourself. And I feel like for both sides of the equation for coach and for athlete, like for, for us as coaches, we try to put, we're like, this is our philosophy. It's all out there in the open. So when we like, when we start asking questions of athletes who might consider us for coaches, we're like, does, do you align with this? Does this sound good? And for athletes, I think it's so important to be fully transparent yourself. Like what are all the different interests and goals and things that you want to do and making sure that it's a good overlap, um, is helpful. So I love that you were like, you know, super out, super like fully yourself in that process. And David was too. And, um, I think that's just how the best relationships form. Yeah, I agree. So on that note, Um, you and David are very positive and very supportive. And for some reason that makes you very polarizing. It seems like. Yes, it does. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) People don't love positivity. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's very interesting. Like just going to your podcast reviews and it's like five stars, a million, one stars, a lot too. (laughs) How do you deal with that? Whether it's, I'm, I'm guessing it would be more on like a social media side where you'd see that the negativity than in person. Um, but how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's an amazing question. I think, so we get at the idea that we're just not for everyone and it's really helpful. Like we we're going to be fully authentically ourselves on there and we're very positive. We also have a, a bit of an edgy side and sometimes we do royally, we do product reviews and shoe reviews and sometimes we really crap on products. So we, we do, we do bring the heat sometimes too. Um, but I think we've just fully accepted the idea that like, we're going to be ourselves up there and it's when you broadcast to a live audience, like we're broadcasting to a pretty live audience at this point, we're just not going to be for everyone. And I think there's no point diluting ourselves down to 70, 80% to try to appeal towards a broader audience. And in the same way too, we discuss a lot of, and these days polarizing issues, um, you know, related to politics or gender. And to us, those are important topics. Like it's something that we're passionate about. And if you discuss that, like you're, you're inevitably going to get one star reviews, but to us, it's worth it. Like I would much rather go out on a limb and say important statements that I feel like matter like to me in terms of my internal values than, um, you know, and I also just don't look at the one star reviews. That's really helpful. (laughs) 
<laughs> I like, I take in enough feedback where it's like helpful to improve, but sometimes there's just those like people that are out there to be mean and nasty. And it's like, mm-hmm. I can look at it, but you don't always need to process it. Yeah. That is great advice. I, f- I feel like, especially I'm on TikTok a lot recently and that Ooh. is, I feel like that's where the mean people go. Cause it's easier to be anonymous interesting I have not explored yeah. TikTok that's I would not have guessed that I I for some reason envisioned it being this like more supportive environment because it's like like funny videos but perhaps I have the wrong I think I might have the wrong view of TikTok well I think it depends so most of it in my experience is very supportive like you TikTok's algorithm is very good especially compared to Instagram's algorithm um so like it finds who you're trying to be around very quickly but the issue is when like you have a video go viral or like semi-viral or like viral for your audience that's when the mean people come out (laughs) Ah. well actually that's I feel like that's an important statement because I feel like with like quote-unquote virality comes a larger audience and there's Tim Tim Ferriss I think has and it's some percentage is either like five or ten percent of people no matter what you do in life will disagree with you even if you Mm -hmm. feel like it's like relatively mundane stuff and when you're when you're going more viral it's just going to be a larger that percentage is going to equate to a larger number Um, and I think that's always been helpful for me too it's like well the more viral you go the more haters you're going to have and that's that's just like that's that's what happens. Yeah, it's interesting. I made a TikTok once about trail etiquette and (laughs) that one um, went viral for me. And I was going to say, I think I might have seen that actually (laughs) (laughs) on Instagram because, you know, you can you can share TikToks on Instagram. Yeah, (laughs) that's so funny. Um, Yeah, the the mountain bikers got really mad at me because I said they Uh... had to yield to everyone. Because they are supposed to. <laughs> they are. And again, it's like, you can't please everyone. You know what I mean? It like the trail learning community loved it. And then it's just, it's hard. You just not going to please everyone in life. That's yeah. the, I'm, I'm yeah. pretty sure I saw that video. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> it was the dumbest thing. I was like, seriously, but it does make sense. Especially, I don't know if you've experienced this with encountering mountain bikers on trail, but not all of them, probably the minority, but I always remember the ones that are just like, rude when you won't get out of their way you know I'm like I am the runner I have the right of way most of the time here. Yeah. Well, it's actually, I found it kind of a polarizing, I would say 99% of the mountain bikers that I've interacted with are incredible. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's because like to be a mountain biker, you're doing kind of like wild and reckless, sometimes reckless things at times. (laughs) And so they have this like different appreciation of life, but I have for sure had that like one or 2% experience where like you're in someone's way and I get it. I've mountain biked. So I get it to some extent because it's like, if you're whipping around turns in a mountain bike, it's dangerous to a level that like trail running isn't necessarily, but I think also in Boulder too, there's like a lower population of mountain bikers compared to like golden and evergreen area. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it was probably the worst during the pandemic because the trails were just really crowded. So that was just (laughs) rough. But it's, it's always horrifying actually. Cause I I'm often with Addie, our dog on the trails yeah. and I'm always like, is there a mountain biker behind me? Where's one coming? So yeah. A question I have for you. What is something that you've learned while coaching that surprised you that maybe you thought wasn't what it is like before you started coaching? If that question makes sense. That does make sense. And you're going to make me, I'm going to have, I like 
very rarely take pauses, which is not a great thing. I need to pause a little bit more <laughs> in life. Um, but let me think about this one. I think to me, it's the sheer power of what we as humans, and this is, this is actually, this sounds kind of cheesy, but it's like, it's actually truly, it's like the sheer power of what we as humans can do. So I have coached athletes that are like stereotypically just like not a like, you know, they, they have no background as a runner. Like they're just learning and the rapidity in which they go from like not covering very many miles to running or, you know, hiking or covering a hundred miles worth of ground in races is like, I think to me, I'm just always shocked at what humans can do when we put one foot in front of the other. And that has been, I mean, I think I knew that to some extent, like there's amazing humans out there, but seeing it in person and being there for those athletes as they go through that has been something that's truly wild to me. And that's why I actually love coaching a diverse range of athletes. Um, so it's really fun to pro- coach like professional and elite level athletes because they're winning races. It's, it's exciting. It's like, it's super mm-hmm. fun. But I think I, I see that experience even more in athletes that are just starting out is like truly just how much they can do and how, just how much they can do when they put one foot in front of the other. And it's been something that's been really rewarding. That's awesome. And yeah, the seeing the range of athletes is just, it's so exciting. Like the person just getting into running or trail running is just as exciting as like the pro you were talking about in my mind. So, and it sounds like in yours too. Yeah. Well, it's, it's with the pros, you know, it's really exciting to grasp like that, the extra 1% improvement. Mm -hmm. And with people who are just starting out, they could improve 1% in a week, uh, which is maybe even more than that. Uh, Maybe they might even improve 10% in a week and like stacking. There's just like so much excitement because you constantly see that growth. Um, And of course there's setbacks too you know, as with any athlete getting into it, but, um, I think it's, it is fun to coach that range, the range of athlete experiences. And I love that you have that, that too. I want to touch on your pregnancy a bit. Congrats. First of all, thank you. I'm excited. I'm learning pregnancy is like a very, I've coached a lot of athletes actually through pregnancy. So it's meaningful for me to go through it myself because I just want to learn. Um, it's, I think whenever you go through something yourself, you just learn on a, on a much deeper level. Um, but I'm also learning that it's, it's an up and down process, but I'm so excited. Um, I it's, we were excited to get pregnant and, um, it's been a fun journey so far. Yeah. It was very exciting when you announced it. Cause I know you had been talking on the podcast about well, first you were talking about like how David wasn't sure if he wanted kids and you wanted kids. And that was a cool conversation to hear. I think, well, I mean, all of your conversations are cool to hear because it's just very real and it's like a real view into a relationship. And this is kind of a tangent. You don't pretend to be like a perfect couple, which I appreciate because no one is. Um, and that's all we see in, you know, like movies and TV shows and everything. But with your pregnancy, how far along are you now? Like 21 weeks? Close. Look at you. You're, you're so spot on. Uh, 22 weeks, 22. It's in pregnancy. I feel like, you know, every single day of where you are because it's like, it's a long process. So it's like, and I don't know, maybe this is like, maybe I should be less data driven in pregnancy. It's like me being like, I'm at 37 and a half miles to a 50 mile race. No, I'm at 22 and a half weeks now. So um, it's been, it's progressing well. And how big does that make baby boy? Oh my gosh. I am actually not up to date on this week. I think it's, I know it's, I've been checking. So they, they compare, they compare like your fetus size to different food objects, which Dave and I were talking about actually sometimes really strange. So different food objects, actually, I think this week it's a, it's an apple pie, um, is 
sizes, but then there's like, sometimes it doesn't always match because they give you animal. Um, and also in Maltese puppy, I think it's Maltese puppy and apple pie is this week. And those two don't feel like they compare at all. So usually they give you like an animal and a food size, size, um, kind of way that you can size up baby. And usually there, there's no relationship (laughs) in size between the two. Yeah, that's, they don't match up very well. (laughs) No. And that's been, it's been a conundrum. Like one week it was like a a kitten and an ice cream cone. And (laughs) it's like, those are two very different sizes to me, unless you, I mean, I dream big with ice cream cones, but I feel like the common person doesn't. So yeah. Yeah. I would think double scoop. Yeah. I, a kitten to me is like, that seems like, like, I don't know, like eight scoops. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it depends how old um but anyway with your pregnancy so being I I don't have kids or anything so I'm just (laughs) speculating here (laughs) what has been the hardest part for you so far because I feel like I I feel like we're seeing it more now but we haven't seen many like athlete journeys through pregnancy and like especially since you were are you considered elite I guess so. Yeah. (laughs) I would consider you elite. (laughs) Uh, So, but it's been, I think the hardest part for me is actually the anxiety of it. Um, So I think, yeah, I had some health. I had myocarditis in my heart um, Mm -hmm. and an autoimmune condition. And so I was dealing with that right as I got pregnant. And so I think I was already like hyper aware of what was going on in my body because I felt like things were constantly going wrong. And I know this is a common mindset in pregnancy because I've coached a lot of athletes through pregnancy, but constant anxiety that something is going to happen to the the baby inside me or that like, I am going to do something that's going to harm baby when in reality, like I, you know, I have a background in medicine. I understand research and it's like the fact of me, like, you know, going on a run and causing, you know, damage to pregnancy. It's just, that just doesn't happen unless you do something like astronomically or like, unless your body has like some underlying issue. And so I think it's, I'm always thinking about and hyper aware of my actions and worried they're going to cause a negative outcome. And I never expected, I kind of expected that to fade in the first trimester. Once you get outside of the classic, like pregnancy loss, um, it's, it's more, it's um, more common to have that in the first trimester, but it's continued all the way. Even like every day I'm like, is, is baby boy kicking enough? And I never quite imagined the level of anxiety I would have related to pregnancy. Yeah. I I've never heard anyone talk about that aspect of it. Yeah. And maybe it's because I know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to say I know too much because I actually don't know that much, but mm-hmm. I feel like I know a dangerous amount about pregnancy to be worried about things that are irrational. And so I think my brain tends to go in those irrational directions and I wish I could turn it off more. And just like, I, I actually even told David the other night that I have a hard time visualizing even him being born because it's like, because I have this level of anxiety, I haven't let my mind go there yet that that will actually be a reality. It's like, I've kind of like, like clamped down my mind in that process. And, and so I wish I'm like, I feel like I'm like starting to get there and starting to open up, but it's been a very, it's, it's been in a very anxiety filled process. Yeah. It sounds like it. And it just sounds like your brain is just trying to protect you if something mm-hmm. were to happen, which obviously very natural, but <laughs> must yeah. be hard to grapple with. I, I was not prepared for that. And there's been, and I think, 
you know, there's been amazing moments of it where it's like, you know, you feel baby kick for the first time, or like you get to see him on ultrasound and it all feels like so real and so exciting. So I've definitely had that side by side with the anxiety. And so I feel like it's been more of a roller coaster because it's like, you know, you get those really excited like moments or, you know, Mm -hmm. you start like picking out like cribs and bassinets and things like that. Um, right alongside the anxiety. And so, I mean, I feel like that's parallel to a lot of situations though in life Mm -hmm. where you care about something. Like, I think for me, it stems like, I love this little baby boy inside my stomach (laughs) so much. And I think that anxiety stems from love. Um, and I would much rather, rather have that level of love that produces anxiety than like indifference. And so I'm just like rolling with it and, you know, processing it and dealing with it the best I can. Yeah. And I think it's really special for us listeners of your podcast that you've been sharing this journey and just like a very real perspective of it, which I think is really cool. Um, I personally don't know if I ever want kids, but it's nice having like a view inside versus, you know, like someone on Instagram who, you know, is pregnant. They only show you the highlights and it's like, oh, being pregnant is great. And I know that's not true. (laughs) yeah it's not (laughs) yeah it's been cool hearing especially since you do know more than the average human about like the medical aspect of pregnancy and just kind of learning more through you and your experience um I don't know if you realize that I'm probably not the only listener who is experiencing this so Thank you. Yeah. We've had a lot of actually, um, some really amazing pregnant women have reached out and shared their experience too. And it's been helpful. I feel like it's going both directions where, you know, I share openly on the podcast and listeners send in emails or send in messages and they share back. And so it's this like dual process of learning together. And I think that is one unique element of being pregnant is that there are a host of women, you know, out there have gone through similar things and I'm just trying to soak in as much of their experiences and as much of their anecdotes and soak in like the raw complete picture mm-hmm. and like Instagram is just not a great modality to share the full picture, which is why I'm grateful to have a podcast because I can do things like burp on there. And it's like, yeah, that's the fully lived pregnancy experience. Like it's a lot of burping. Um, so it's nice to be able to like open up and share in that way. Yeah. That most recent burp was very funny. <laughs> Actually, David told me after I didn't know this, there's people in the world that have burp fetishes, which I was not aware of. So he was like, Megan, I bet you there's someone out there that's like playing that burp over and over and over again, because it was a, a, like a primo burp. Uh, So yeah, that, that was a new fun fact of the day. You could sell it. (laughs) That's what he said. Actually. He was like, do you think you could burp people? Actually, there's a high market for selling burps. He was like, you're sound pretty good right now. Yeah. Oh, I burp a lot. Maybe I should get into this. <laughs> I know. He was there was a podcast actually where someone had an autoimmune disorder and it caused a lot of burping. And so they just started selling their burps on the on the web and did quite well. <laughs> well, the more you know. <laughs> Learn something new every day. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I have one last question related to your pregnancy. Was between you and David, was there ever a conversation of like hesitancy to bring a baby into this world with like everything that's been going on for the past couple of years. Yeah, we've had a lot, a lot of hesitancy on that. I think on multiple levels. Um, 
you know, I think on an environmental level and on many different levels, but I think what we decided was that we just hope to shower this kid with so much love that hopefully like that love can counter uh, a lot of the forces right now in the world someday and really excited um, to get to do that and just like hopefully impart joy and love into the fact that like you can show up and fail and um, channel this little kiddo into doing some productive things for the world. And so that's how we got around it. Um, I don't know if that's like great rationalism um but I I was pretty headstrong and that I wanted kids and it took convincing David um to do so and now he's like fully invested and bought in and it's neat to see him make that 180 so it's been a fun like partnership in having those open conversations between us yeah I feel like that is what you need in order to go through something like this not only in like today's world just like in general and I think that just knowing how you and David are on the podcast and how you present yourselves to the rest of the world, like that baby boy is going to have so much love in his life. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that means a ton love and lots of jokes and lots yeah. of burps is hopefully, and lots of, lots of snacks, yes. uh, both of goal of snack goals and exercise snacks. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, we're excited. <laughs> Yeah. Well, congrats again on that. Um, if anyone wants to find you, where should they go? And also please plug your Patreon. Oh, you are amazing. Um, so it's Meg runs happy on, um, Instagram, uh, share lots of stuff. There lots of jokes. Um, swaprunning.com is our, um, website for all things swap related. And then our Patreon, I'm actually going to pull up my window right now to make sure I have the correct. <laughs> and I do it's patreon.com slash swap. And thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for being such an incredible podcast listener and podcast yourself. I feel like I'm coming away with this with like all kinds of notes. I might even email you actually after the fact and be like, am I missing anything? Cause I'm really excited to add this to our podcast next week. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. This was so much fun. I'm I, this is the highlight of my week. Thank you. Me I'm too. like, <laughs> I was having a lot of zoom calls today and this is like the energy I need to keep going. So thank you so much um, for your joy and just for, for the knowledge that you bring into the world as a coach. It means a lot. Yeah. And thank you for sharing all of your knowledge with us every day and for squeezing in a Wednesday podcast recording when you record Tuesday and Thursdays every week. Oh, I love it. We're just (laughs) keeping the momentum going. It's great. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening to this. If you like this podcast, please rate, subscribe, review everything you do for podcasts wherever you listen to them. It helps me out immensely and helps other people find the show and just spread my message. And if you haven't already, connect with me on Instagram or TikTok at Coaching Klutz. You can also find me at my website, coachingklutz.com, if you're looking for my coaching services or any of my running programs. And I will talk to you all next time. 